What if every day you had the chance to experience more love and intimacy in your life? We're going to be sharing stories of struggles and triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. Enjoy this podcast with Dawn Richard. Wake up to real love. Hi, everyone. This is Dawn Richard, also known as The Awakening with Dawn. And this is the Wake Up to Real Love show where we share stories of struggles and triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. I am so honored today to welcome my guest, Rex Sykes. Hi, Rex. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I'm great. Rex is Oh my gosh. Like I just have so much respect and love for this man. Uh, Rex Steven Sykes has four decades of experience helping people transform their life. His innovations include mind design, directed questions, and the attitude activator. Rex is an expert on whole brain and accelerated learning, the law of attraction and transformational life design. He's the founder of idea seminars. And he conducts programs on transformation, mind design, and how to create your best life ever. He's appeared before millions in television, radio interviews, and commentary. He's consulted for attorneys and news media, offering commentary on famous trials and celebrities. His clients include attorneys, CEOs, sales professionals and managers, medical doctors, law enforcement, personnel managers, small business owners, uh, training and training personnel, investors, teachers, and educational, excuse me, administrators and actors, filmmakers, and professional speakers. What these clients all share in common is the desire to live their best life. And with Rex, it's possible. And it is because I've been a witness to this the last year and a half. Welcome, Rex. I'm so excited that you're here with me. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you. You are a powerhouse and a positive source of of influence and 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 good things in the world. So I couldn't uh, I couldn't be happier than to be here with you this at this time. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, I reflect you back to you. <laughs> uh, okay. So I always ask an icebreaker question. That's kind of not related to what we're going to talk about, but related to what we're going to talk about. And so you and I were just talking before we started recording about your experience in the acting world. And I want to know what you learned about yourself by being in the acting world. Wow, that's a great question. It really, I mean, it really is. I've encouraged everybody from all walks of life to take acting lessons because it is it is an opportunity to to explore who you are and what you can bring to the table. You know, a lot of people say they're shy or that they're uh, not able to do things, but if they get out and they just express themselves and have fun and enjoy it, even if it's a community college or a community theater or, you know, uh, some kind of ch- child playground uh, um, program, <clears throat> you learn that you can do it. You know, there were I when I was a young actor, I used to do like because I grew up loving Groucho Marx, so I had all these kind of facial, you know, facial animated expressions, yeah. And my acting coach time said, you know, if you're on a forty foot screen and you're raising your eyebrows like that, nobody's going to watch you for very long. You're never going to get tired. <laughs> you need to stop that. So it was learning how to eliminate bad habits, things that we do, you know, our mannerisms, and then learn how to 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 practice and rehearse. Um, things that you could incorporate in your life. 
So even you know, it, what I discovered was I could I could have a positive attitude by pretending, by acting to be positive. And uh, it was something I did as a child. My parents put me in acting classes when I was four and in dancing and acrobatics when I was three. So I've, I've always been in an acting class in one way, shape, form or another. And, and then I bring that to the, everything I do. So it's truly a, a, a beautiful way to learn self-expression um, and to to overcome um Thoughts of limitation about ourselves by by actually practicing, rehearsing, and then doing. Were your were your parents in the acting world? No, and they had no no wish or desire for me to be. They just felt that it was the thing that would be well rounded. You know, the kid would be exposed to the arts, and they gave me piano lessons. I don't play the piano to this day, but <laughs> but they gave me piano lessons, and in uh, all these. How about that, acrobats? Do you still do cartwheels? <laughs> nope, nope, nope. I should, but I don't. I actually, um, yeah. So anyway, at about a, at eleven, I had a, a very severe knee, a tore all the tendons, and actually, I was twelve, uh, tore all the tendons and ligaments for my knees and ankles in a in a gymnastic accident. So that kind of oh, ouch. that aspect of what I was doing. And were your were your parents very positive? No. What were what were they like? No, my my parents were good people. They were both professionals. They're both doctors. My mom was one of the first doctors in in the state that she worked in, and. Um, and uh, and people didn't like a woman doctor at that time in the fifties and sixties. Mm. She was and, a trailblazer. Yeah, she indeed she was. And um, but they weren't real positive. They were always, you know, my dad would always say to me, you know, Rex, you got a dark cloud following you around, and <gasps> always, you know, prepare for the future. What if you're alone? What if you don't have money? They were very, they they had money, but they were very generous to me with their money. But they were very tight with their money. It was always, we don't have this, we don't have that, we, you know, how much this costs. And, because they um, probably grew up in an er- era where they didn't have much money growing up. Right. Uh-huh. So so I would say, I mean, they were loving but not very gregarious. They didn't express it. They didn't. We didn't hug or any of that kind of stuff. They were just kind of like, I love you. <coughs> so by the time I was 12 or 13, I felt like there were these major holes in me um, where I just didn't know what they were. I felt for some reason unlikable and unwantable and you know and and i went through the child abandonment thing like you know i could come home and my kids my parents wouldn't be there those, those kinds of fears that kid had um but i i always respected and admired and, and loved them i mean they thought that they, they they were really good people doing the best they could mm-hmm. with what they had at the time they just didn't have uh anything that that you know would point me in the direction of being positive or uh, but by that i don't mean you know what i mean i mean and they were very they were also very much ahead of themselves in, 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 or not ahead of themselves, but ahead of the time in that they were very, they embraced diversity and respect for all people. So they really set a good foundation of being a, for me to be a moral, loyal, trustworthy, honest person. I, I, I wouldn't do things because I would feel that, you know, I would disappoint my parents, or, you know, more than disappointing me at the time. But, uh-huh. but like I wouldn't have parties when they went away because I was like, if somebody came in and broke something for my mom and dad, I'd feel really bad that, that I betrayed their trust. So wow. I grew up always wanting to be, you know, a demonstration of, of being honest and transparent and trustworthy and, 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 and to put that forward. So that, and do you have siblings? I do have, I have a sibling. Yes, I have a sister. Uh-huh. And she's a, a journalist and an author and a film producer and a, an activist. She produced a movie called Equal Means Equal and the, and the uh, fifth, the, the uh, ratifying the uh, Equal Right Amendment. And, and uh, she's been nominated for Emmys. Wow. Uh, things like that. And now she's doing stand-up comedy. Wow. 
So she she developed a love for the arts as well. Oh, indeed. Well, we both did. I grew up doing magic and mind reading, and she grew up doing puppetry, you know, and stuff like that. So acrobatics, acting, and and performance has always been in both of our lives. Okay, magic and mind reading. Uh, Okay, now the rest of your life makes sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, okay, because this is interesting. I, I always wonder why people get into what they get into. And it's so funny because I think a lot of times we don't recognize that the things that we were drawn to and when we were younger, it really sets the foundation for what our purpose is. And, and and I know in your book, you talk a lot about your purpose being the driving force of everything that, that you do. Well, yeah. I mean, when I, it, it, historically I was about four, I was sitting watching movies on my mom's lap and uh-huh. one of them, I was dog soup with the Marx Brothers. And when I want to do that, that's funny. I want to do that. Hence the Groucho Marx mannerisms. I was five when I saw the movie Houdini with Tony Curtis and went, oh, I've got to do that. Uh-huh. And uh, by the time I was eight, I was doing it, you know, and I was I was also exploring mind reading and things because at the age of six, I, w- I had been raised Catholic and I we have to go to mass before school and, and on Sundays. And um, I thought this priest has some kind of mystical connection with God. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be a mystic. So, you know, an actor. A you, you are, by the way. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. And no, and I, I, I am. I'm very much so. But um, I asked my mom at the age of six, because we did have positive books in the house. We had the Little Gibran, Think and Grow Rich, the Bhagavad Gita and other books, you know, of that day. Um, and I said, I, I need, you know, read me these books. So she started, I think, with the little Gibran, and then we went into the Bhagavad Gita, and then finally we got to Think and Grow Rich. And um, by the time I was 11, I was reading the books on my own, and I've been reading Think and Grow Rich almost every day of my life since then, because um, I realized that when I said when I was 11, 12, and I felt like I had this hole, I needed some kind of help. Uh-huh. So while I was reading it, here's here's the thing that – People ought to know. Reading is great. I mean, I have my book, Life on Your Terms, and, and you should read it and, and read it. But and you should. I did. But it's not just reading. Yeah. The reading won't transform you. It's the application of what you learn that's important. So I recently was in back in home in, in California for this Can You Really Think and Grow Rich? And, and uh, one of the uh, primary principal players in the Napoleon Hill Foundation, Satish, who runs the, the, the school there, um, I said, look, I read Thinking Rich from the time I was six until the time I was about 25, with the exception of about a year prior to that. And and in, I talk about it in my book, how I got into trouble and what happened to me. But during that year before I got into difficulty um, with my own mindset, my own life, I, I wasn't reading it. I was focused on my career and things were falling apart and things weren't going well. And and uh, and, uh, and then I had the event that I talk about in the book. But the... Uh, but he came up to me and he said, you know, not many people will admit to doing something but not applying it. And I said, but that's what my life was about. I had read this thing for more than more than 11 years, more than 12 years, almost 15 years, but didn't apply it. Mm-hmm. After I had a crisis in my life when I tried to kill myself and everything else, I went, I got to get back on track. And that's where I locked myself into my apartment for six weeks, a minimum of six weeks, a little longer than that, but, you know, and, and sat in this chair and said, I'm not going to leave until I can, can claim my life back. And, and that's where I discovered how to do directed questions and take control of my mind and power of attitude and all sorts of stuff. 
but it, but it came at that point of saying, okay, I know all this stuff, but I'm not doing all this. Right. Stuff. And so that's the that's the, the the deepest one of the deepest understandings that you and I can pass along to people is it's one thing to know what we should do. It's another thing to actually do that. And when you do it, that's why the acting lessons is important. And when you actually get in and you act and you do it and you rehearse, I mean, consider this for a second. Actors, as well as all performance, but actors get their lines and they get stage directions and they have to, you know, convey these emotions, whether they're in a play or on camera. And they rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. For example, a play will rehearse at least six weeks. Mm-hmm. So that on opening night, it looks like it's happening for the first time ever. Right. But it's very well rehearsed. And what that means is that they're practicing and you can practice spiritual principles and emotional principles and mental principles and financial principles and transformational principles. If you practice them, you can get good at them. But most people won't practice them and they won't do them enough. The same way people go to the gym on New Year's Day and they go for two or three weeks and then they give it up. Right. But those people who go and make it a a practice that throughout the year they go a number of times and then it's through the years they do it, they learn that they can recondition themselves in positive ways and experience all sorts of wonderful joy and, and possibilities that they wouldn't otherwise have because you can't dip and dabble. you got to actually dive in. Well, that I, <laughs> I've heard it called, uh, you know, people call it self-help, but when it, when you don't apply it, it's just shelf help. <laughs> oh, I've never heard that. That is great. I love that. That's great. I didn't come up with it, but I just thought it was clever. It's shelf help because you, you're not, you're not applying it. And this is, this is the beauty of your work is because you live, you live it. And I think that, and I think that all of us, uh, it has to become who we are. It's not just what we do. It becomes who we are. It's how we embody the things that we want more of in our life. Absolutely. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was formulating my, my, my own approach to things, which was a blend of meditation and thinking grow rich and the later neurolinguistic programming and all these things, what I called mind design and directed questions, um, I discovered because I did a lot of therapy workshops. I did a lot of encounter groups. I wanted to learn to open myself up as well as be able to present these things to mm-hmm. other people to teach. I wanted to get as good as I could in the, in the mental and spiritual arts, you know, in yeah. science so that I, so that I, I was a legitimate voice. What I, um, what I found was I would go to some of these workshops and you would sit like in chairs and touch each other's knees and look each other in the face meaningful for about six hours and it would be done. You come back the next day and you do that for a month. That's how the, like the early NLP seminars were. And it was all very kind of cerebral. And so when I started doing seminars, I wanted it to be experiential. It's not the information that changes you, but the experience and the ability to dive in. So whether I did a one day retreat or a three-day retreat or ultimately a 15-day or, or longer retreat because later I, I, I had a 100-acre resort re- retreat center that we that we wow about a decade. It wasn't mine. We rented it every year for the duration of the year. But the <clears throat> point was that people, in order to have change, you have to have an experience. It's not just knowing about something. It's having that experience of transformation. So you want people to be able to have a taste of it. Right. It's kind of like going to a buffet. You can look at all the food and go, I don't want any of it. Or, I don't like that. Or I like that, but I don't want that. And someone say, well, try this. And you're not going to try it. 
but, but if you don't try it, you don't have any experience of it. You don't know if you like it or not. Right. You can go, that's not for me. Or you can try and go, oh, my gosh, this is the best thing ever. Right. But you have to have the experience. And life is like a buffet. So instead of avoiding experiences, like try them, you know, experience it. And I'm not saying do illegal things, obviously, but I'm saying, you know, dive in and and have the experience and, and notice how you change as a result of that. If you don't do it, you won't do it. And it, it, and frankly, it's a reconditioning process. It's just like, like what I talked about going to the gym. If you, you know, but there's, there's, there's good news on all fronts regarding that. You can change in so many ways. But, but we literally workshops back in the 70s and 80s were very, some were very confrontive and physically experiential and others were very cerebral. And, and, but none of them were very celebrative or happy or positive or it was all, these are serious issues people are trying to break down. And I'm like, I, you don't end up solving your serious issues by being serious about them. <laughs> It's kind of like fighting fire with fire. You don't, you know, right. yes, on the fire. I'm fighting for peace. It's like, exactly. that doesn't it, make sense. That is so, that's exactly right. God. I mean, people hate, you know, you can't, you can't get loving by hating. You don't get right. peace by fighting. And so you have to do something different. So, so my, my practice was how do I, I bring meditation? I bring the whole, how the brain works and bring gratitude and expressiveness and enthusiasm and exuberance to things. And when you learn that way and it's fun, you're learning how most children learn. They're out there chasing butterflies. They're rolling around in the sand. Nowadays, they're on their iPhones. But in the old days, they actually used to play outside and walk around in the mud and get wet in the rain and ride their bikes and stay out until the streetlights were on, you know, that kind of thing. So, so it was an experience. And you learn more as a child through play than you actually learned in school. Mm-hmm. I think of everything you learned to get to school, and then they sat you down and made you learn book stuff. Where you right, cerebral. Right. Went back to being screwed. Okay. Where does your heart fit into all of this? Where does it not? <laughs> yes. It's all hard. You know, now neuroscience is, is, is validating what the ancients knew decades ago. I mean, if, if you just look at the, the notion of the chakras, it tells you everything you want to know about the world. There's okay. Three. Okay. For people, for people who don't know about the chakras, give a little oh, energy, energy centers. There's the, the root at the tailbone. And then there's the, the, what they call the sex, you know, around your genitals. And there's the gut, which they call your power center. And then there's the heart and communication. Then there's your third eye or psychic. And then there's spiritual. I mean, in a nutshell, right? Yeah. The heart, there's three above and three below and the heart's right in the middle. Hmm. The heart, the, everything goes through the heart. You know, if it goes up or goes down, it passes through the heart. And nowadays, science is, is validating this. You know, in the old days, they talked about you had different paths. You had paths to enlightenment, like the spiritual or psychic realm, or the path of sadhana or surrender or love and service. So you had you had two different paths, but you're really one path. And now science is going hey, isn't it amazing? The brain has a certain uh, resonance and the heart has a certain resonance, but together they create this incredible coherence. And this is what ancients knew centuries ago, that, you know, they had to be aligned, you know, in order to, to, to really embrace your, your fullness of, of being. When your head and your heart are aligned and you're, you're dedicated to a mission or a purpose, then everything starts working in order. Then you can use your power, you know, and all the other stuff to 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 get what it is that you intend to get. But it should always be heart centered. And and what we've lost in this world is is our heart. 
more people are cerebral, they're fighting over beliefs and, and things that are, are silly as opposed to saying, you know what, I love you, let's figure out a way to work together. Mm, yeah, I feel like there's this whole sense of <clears throat> people are people are in their heads and they're they're fear based and they're, you know, worried about climbing the ladder or kind of these power over structures. Um, and I feel like they have disconnected from their hearts because emotional emotions have not been valued or validated or honored. So how do we, how do we, how do we re um, what's the word I want to use? Like re-engage with, with our whole system. Well, you know, the, the notion is be, do, and have. You are it, then you can do it, and then you will have it. The mm. whole world has it backwards. It has do it so you can have it so that you can be it. Mm. So people, and, and, and back in the, uh, Freud came out with his philosophy and, and his nephew, a guy named Edwin Bernays, took it. You know, at one time we were in agrarian culture and, and a need-based culture. So if you needed another cow, you got another cow. If you needed another tractor, you got another tractor. You didn't go, I want five tractors just to have five tractors. Right. We became an industrialized society where people moved from the farms to the cities, and now they were hired, they were employed. And at that time, in many ways, without any unions, without any protections, without any child labor laws or anything, you know, it's very grueling and and horrific experience but it was what people knew bernays came in to the factories and said i using my uncles he didn't say his uncles but i using these approaches can can get people to buy more of this stuff they he wanted to they wanted to create a want-based society mm-hmm. and, it, and this and the field was called propaganda which should tell you everything wow <laughs> that field called propaganda quickly became re- renamed. Do you know what that name became? The government. <laughs> Public relations. Ooh. And most PR people today don't know the roots of public relations. It started as a wow. way of getting people to separate their money to want things. Like so so how did they do it? They created fear and scarcity. Scarcity and lack. You got yellow teeth and flaky hair and bad skin and, and smelly pits. You need this. And if you want to be part of that community, you need this. And if you want to be part of that, you need this car. You need two TV sets. You need a bigger house. You need that. So it all was a drive to get the people who were working to spend their money back to the corporations. And Ford, at least Henry Ford, people like him and don't like him for a number of reasons. But Ford said, I will never create a car that the worker on my plant can't afford. Well, nowadays, most people can't afford these cars. I mean, you know, cars cost more than a home in many cases nowadays. And I'm not talking about Bentleys and, you know, Bugattis. And I'm talking about, you know, you know, a, a regular car costs thirty or sixty thousand dollars. I mean, right. not that more than was, some people's annuals, more than a lot of people's annual salary. And and, <clears throat> and then they go, it's not the the amount of money you pay; it's the size of the payment, so that they get people enrolled right. in, in debt for the rest of their lives. And this is this has been a huge issue. And um, what sadly is the case is a lot of the thought leaders of today perpetuate that myth. Mm. They tell you you have to do more because if you do more, then you'll have all these things. If you do just take massive action and do these things, you can have these kinds of houses and cars and jets and everything. And they buy right into the very thing that Bernays had got everybody convinced that corporations did. Instead of saying how do you get free of this thing and how do you be more so that you can do more so that you can have more? They've, they've lost the person over the action. Yeah. Take these actions and you can succeed. And so you'll see all this stuff. Of, what is success? It's hard work, this, that, and the other. all these people do all these things. 
but it's not about being that success. It can be, obviously. But if you're your authentic self, if you're living from your heart and you're loving your life, there are people out there who have virtually nothing around the world, but who are deliriously happy and have yeah. wonderful relationships. They live in their mud huts. They eat their, their, their spare, sparse food, you know, but they're thrilled and they're, love, they're in love with life. And then there are those people, and I've spent countless hours in their homes, who have everything. Everything that, plus. Everything. And they're sad and they're miserable and they're going, I, I suck. I don't like myself. What can you do to help me? And I'm like, well, I can't help you. You have to help yourself. I can show you how. But you have to do the work. And they're like, well, I'll pay you anything. I mean, it's not about the money. It's about you have to become an authentic person. You, you, can't, be, you can't be in pursuit of. So. Pursuit of, okay, this is deeply philosophical. But I feel like so many people carry this sense of loneliness yes. and disconnection within themselves. And so they're constantly looking for everything external to fill them up and make them feel worthy yeah well and and that's how i felt as a child that's why i said i started to read these things and do these things and then i didn't apply it because i didn't know i mean even though it says in these books do this like in my book i keep saying do these things and if you do that but what i what i want to do and you know was helping people is give them bite-sized things that they can do that are fun and enjoyable enough so that they can transform along the way so it's not it's not this major change everything in your life thing where which because most people won't do that it's, it's here's how you incorporate these things in in a in an easy, realistic, fun fashion where you can get the most return on your investment. So, it, you know, it is about living life on your terms. It's about creating the life that you want. And where I came into my power really was after my crisis and I spent my time working on myself and I decided, I, you know, I want to share this. I was like, I looked around and I went, I'm as far as I know, I mean, we believe in reincarnation or not. I'm here this time. I mean, right. even, if even if I've had millions of lives, it doesn't really matter. I'm here, I'm right here now. now. Yeah. So how do I want to spend now? And I realized this is my planet. This is a garden. There's, there's, and I am the owner of this. This is this. And I claimed it. I'm like, I own this planet. And I, and I say this a lot. I own Los Angeles. It's my city. And, and, and people in LA think, Oh, you're such an egotist. <laughs> I go, because I own it. I have co-owners. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not walking through people's backyards. I'm just saying I have co-owners. But when I claimed that this is mine, it meant that I could then be responsible for taking care of it. And it was up to me to make it what I wanted to be. You know, there's a saying that things don't happen to you. They happen for you. Yeah. Which I love because I, I do think that that's true. And secondly, I tell people, and they have a harder time with this one, it seems, in some ways, that people don't happen to you, they happen for you. Mm-hmm. So the very people and the very events and circumstances in your life that are the most difficult or egregious or the ones you least like are truly gifts and blessings for you to help wake you up so that you can go, okay, I'm not going to live that way anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start living purposefully with intention, and I'm going to live life on my terms, and I'm going to create this life that I want, and I'm going to celebrate everything. I'm going to make this the most wonderful experience that I can make on the time that I'm here. And if I come back, then I'll do it all over again, or I will have stepped up a bit. If I never come back, at least this experience has been fabulous. And so how do I live a life of joy and love and compassion and peace and service and help other people do the same thing. Right. And then that, and that means, that means you have to take responsibility 
Absolutely. And, 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 okay, so here's my question, because you had your trauma and drama and, you know, your, your challenge in your life. And when you're in the midst of that, it's hard to see all of the other possibilities. So I think that a lot of times people stay stuck in that this sucks. I don't like this. I can't, I feel powerless. I can't do anything about this. So how, how do we help people? I mean, because it's the, I know it's their responsibility, but how can, how can we help them become creator as opposed to your victim? You're not responsible. You're powerless. You don't have any choices. I mean, there's a whole mindset, which you talk a lot about. How do, how do we help people? How do we teach that to people? Because even your dad said, oh, Rex, you have a black cloud over your head. So, you, so you're living your life thinking, well, I guess I just have a black cloud over my head. Right. I thought I was completely unlucky and that bad things were just destined to happen to me. And there was no, you know, it wasn't my choice. It was not my, my fault. For somewhat. And yeah, and a lot of people live like this. So this is a, a, a beautiful and a very worthwhile question, Don. I'm going to use an analogy or, or what happens to the world, and it's going to break down at a certain point because, because there's, as every analogy or every example does, there could be a counterexample or, yeah, but wait. Right. But the, um, the Boy Scout, Girl Scout motto was always be prepared. So if you're going camping, pack for your camping trip. If you're going fishing. That's you- why I overpack, because I was a Girl Scout. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Breakthrough. <laughs> No, it's funny because my kids are like, you always overpack. And I said, well, I need to, you know, I need to be prepared for this and this and this. And what if this happens? Yeah, That's so well, funny. Okay, thank well, but, you. But it's true. But it's true. But, but the flip, you know, and, and growing up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, we had the notion of, of you know, duck and cover and getting under a desk. And people had built uh, bomb shelters at the right. time. And, they, and my parents did. They stocked up food. We didn't have a bomb shelter. I kept saying, why don't we have a bomb shelter? Don't we need one of these things? And they go... But they stocked water and canned food. They had a whole thing, and they had it in the basement, and they had it in the upstairs in the pantry. And, I mean, and they toilet opened, paper the last couple of years. A year supply, you know, in case, in case right. we had this thing. You know, and being raised, being raised in the religion I was, they were told, well, you're the first to go. You know, the Soviets will come in, and they're going to kill you all, and, and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you need to know how to hide and do this stuff. Well, so this, the good part about that was that people were preparing for an impending catastrophe that might never come. But, but nowadays, people are doing the same thing, but with the idea that I'll shoot anybody who tries to get my stuff. You know, in marauding, you know, my neighbor, if they want my food stocks, I, I, I'm armed. Which This is why I say it's, I don't like the analogy. But the point is, it's just being prepared. The actor prepares before the performance. The musician prepares before the performance. The speaker prepares before the performance. The attorney prepares before the trial performance. You know, doctors spend years learning how to do surgery or to, you know, to do what they do before they're actually called on doing it. What happens with most people is they don't prepare their mindset and their emotional set, their spiritual set, or even their financial set or the behavior set. They just let whatever happens in the world happen. And then when it happens, they don't know what to do. It's like the rug is pulled out from them and they find themselves in a crisis. Right. And our whole world, while I think is absolutely beautiful, there's, there's, there's different things at play. You know, the universe is expanding, but while it expands, it, it's breaking down. There's entropy, there's chaos. It's just part of the process. It's like your muscles, when you lift dumbbells, the muscle breaks down in order to grow. Right. You know, there's, there's a process. So, right. so all of this is part of a process. And 
what's required of us is to understand that if we want to, there's one of my favorite quotes is if you want to enjoy enduring success, one must travel a little in advance of the world. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's like what you do. You prepare to go on your trip, you pack in, in order to have things. Um, the world media, government, religion, your friends, your neighbors, your family, everybody has bought into this Bernays illusion, but it's not just his. It's been going on since the dawn of humankind that you need to conform and that the world has horrible stuff. Think about this for a second. The news, people say, I don't watch the news because it's all bad news. <clears throat> it's true, but that's what the news is. There's, they don't have a good news show. That's not what news is. Why is, why is news so extraordinary because it's not the what's actually going on it's the exception to what's going on Mm. there are better weather days than there are bad weather days there are more good people in the world than there are bad people there are more positive events happening every single moment of the day than there are bad ones so why does it make news because it's an anomaly it's 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 something that happens out of the norm but what they've convinced us is that this bad news is the norm. Yes, this is the world. It's a horrible, da- bad, damaging place. And if you don't toe the line and if you aren't conditioned properly, and if you don't pay, you know, if you're not a good national government, you know, religious, whatever, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're going to fall by the wayside. So it's all a, it's all a mindset conditioning process. And we bought into it. We're a victim. We are. Yeah, exactly. And that's the first two letters of propaganda, too. Mm-hmm. Propaganda, public relations, the PR, you know. So they've convinced most of us that we're, my son, when he was 16, came to me and said, Dad, you think the world's ending? And I said, Why do you say that? He goes, Well, what's going on and with the political climate and all these bad things? And I, and I said, You know, what I, just, what I just said, there's better, more good things than bad things. And while bad things seem to prevail, what we need to do is find the good. So, for example, when 9-11 happened in an egregious moment in our world, but think about that. We celebrate 9-11. We celebrate a tragedy because it doesn't happen every day. Mm -hmm. Right? But it was was a horrible thing for 3,000 people who lost their lives and their families. It was a horrible thing. But when that happened, people actually ran to the site to help people. To help people. They ran in afterwards, and they got debilitating and deadly diseases because of the toxic chemicals that were released. But they went in, you know, they were first responders, not just paid first responders, but when there's a car accident, people go to the car accident, yeah. you know, to try and help people. We are really much better than we think we are, and that's why I wrote my book, because what we think makes it so. Right. And if you're thinking that you're not enough or that you can't do it or that you have problems that nobody else can have or that you can't solve, you need to learn how to rethink that. You need to stop and let go of it and release that and then learn how to think productively and positively so that you can create the life that you want because anyone can. The beautiful thing about Henry Ford said, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're, you're right. Right. right? Mm-hmm. But he said something else that to me was even more profound. But but I love that quote. He said, I never let what I cannot do prevent me from doing what I can do. Mm. And a lot of people get stuck and go, I can't do this. And therefore, they don't get where they want to go. But it, the question becomes, is what can you do? Well, what you can do is you can read a book. 
you know, you can read my book, you can learn how to do what you need to do in order to get ahead. You can begin applying these principles. You can begin managing your mindset. You can begin falling in love with yourself. You can begin transforming your life and your experience. You can begin helping other people. You know, they say if you're depressed, one of the best things you can do is go help somebody who has a bigger problem than you do. Yeah. Because when you're depressed or sad or whatever, most of the focus is on, is on, you know, the person, on the problem, right. else. By helping somebody else, you get your attention off yourself, off the problem, and onto somebody else. And, and, and you're, you know, in doing that, there's what's called mirror neurons, by the way, you know, in our, in our own neurology. So we, we create this simpatico, this rapport. We also create a different form of energy. And everything is energy. And, it, you know, so you're transforming the energy. It's a beautiful thing to be able to help other people, like what you're doing with your podcast, with your show, and with all of the, all of the work you do to help people. Yeah. So how, so how do you, okay, <clears throat> I think a lot of people can maybe potentially see what they want, but they feel like it's so far away. How could I possibly get there? Because it seems too much, too big, too, <clears throat> too overwhelming. So how do you help people recognize the baby steps along the way? Well, how do you climb a ladder? <coughs> one step at a time. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it, again, it's one of those things that, that shouldn't be lost on people. At one time, when the when people in this country were on the East Coast settlers and wanted to get to the West Coast, it took them months, years, decades to get across right. the country. And, right. and they got to the Grand Canyon. And here's this big asshole in the ground, and yet still people made it to Seattle and to California and to Mexico. I mean, you know, they they didn't let it stop them. Some died along the way. Some you know dropped out along the way. Some settled wherever they settled but people were able to do it. It's not how far it is. It's whether you take that tiny baby step toward it. You know, a journey of a thousand steps, they say, begins with a single step or a thousand miles begins with a single step. I changed that quote a little bit. The first step on that journey of a thousand miles is the decision step. It's the thought step that I'm going to go on this journey. Then it's the physical step on the ground that's important. If you don't make the decision to go, you'll never go. So people who look at something and go, well, that just seems impossible. I'll never be able to do it. Yes, it does right now. But if you start taking simple, easy steps, this is why I did this in the book. I want to give you simple, easy, positive steps that you can do where it's broken down small enough where it's easy to do, but not not so easy that it doesn't have any meaning or that it's boring. Right. Or that you want to have it so that it's significant and meaningful. I'm going to give you simple, easy steps that you can do that get you to your destination. And by the way, if you, if you understand this, if, if here's my destination and here's where I am and I want to get over here, if I'm focused on here and I look at this gulf, then it seems like a long way. And, I, and what am I actually focused on? I'm not focused on where I want to be. I'm focused on the gap between the, the two. gap. Yeah. If I'm focused on the gap, I'm missing, I'm totally missing everything because the gap is the thing that gives people the the most difficulty. You have to actually imagine that you're already at your destination and what that would be like. I mean, that would be the the first, you know, one of the first steps of creating. I'm here, I'm there. I've already got what I want. Now, how did I get there? 
is a good question to ask. What did I do? What were the first steps that I took? What could I do? Maybe I had to read a book. Maybe I had to do a, a workshop or a program. Maybe I had to buy an audio program. Maybe I had to do some exercises. Maybe I had to meditate. Maybe I had to do self-hypnosis. Maybe I had to go to a therapist. Maybe I had to do whatever. But what is it that I can do that gets me moving in that direction? Again, if you're focused on the gap, you, you're never going to go because, you know, or you're going to move very slowly. Mm-hmm. So the journey, how you journey is important. Mm-hmm. I, as a kid, <laughs> yeah. on the floor of the car when my parents would travel cross country and go, are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> are we there yet? I hate this. I don't like this. I don't want to go on trips. I hate this. You know, and then when I got there, I was happy, but I didn't like the process and the process could take days. Right. You know, to get across the country or whatever. And so I was miserable the whole time. Well, what that taught me later was it's important to enjoy the journey, every step along the way. Because if you enjoy the journey, whether you get to your destination or not, shouldn't matter because you're having, you're thrilled all along the way anyway. But you get to your journey faster and easier and, and because you're enjoying it. Whenever you're not enjoying it, you're setting up roadblocks for yourself. You're, you're, you're literally looking for all the reasons why you can't do it or you don't like it or whatever. And so it's going to take you longer if you're angry or frustrated or you do what a lot of thought leaders do. Go, just take masks. I did that. My girls are here. I shook the deck and they think it's that. It's okay. It's okay. Um, but that, but so the, just take massive action and you'll figure it out. You don't need to take massive action except once in a great while. If you're girl, girl honey, Sasha, come here. They're protecting me, so it's it's, yeah. it's what they do. Um, massive action is okay once in a while, but they actually the, the universe and your brain works on the law of conservation and of least effort. Here, this is what most people. Yeah really miss they think i have to do all these things it's not that your brain is designed to do two things keep you alive and help you to thrive or to reproduce so that the species continues it doesn't care what your experience is like as long as you're surviving it and as long as you're able to reproduce so when people people get conditioned to to get stuck your brain will keep you stuck because that's the only thing it learned to do while while you were growing up we're uh-huh. we're conditioned continually but from zero to seven is our primary condition is why aristotle said show me the seven-year-old they'll show you the adult yeah because by seven your personality is pretty much set by the conditioning so we don't actually operate out of present moment experience we operate out of our conditioned reactions to life and how we've habitually done things right so what you want to do is learn how to create new habits that override the old habits. And that's what I talk about in the book and in my programs and why I created the attitude activator. Because attitude is the number one predictor for success in all areas of your life. So if your attitude is, is right, you can accomplish anything. And so if you expect it to be, this is why Henry Ford said, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're correct. And if you think you can't, then you're most likely not going to. But if you think you can, then the question is, is will you? And you will based on what you expect or what you think. So if you uh-huh. think I can and I think that I, oh, I will, no. that I get, that it will pay off for me, then you're li- more likely to move ahead. If you think I can and I will, but I'm not probably going to succeed, then it's very likely that you won't. So you have to take hold of your mindset 
and recondition it to say, I can and I will and I am actually doing this. And then, and then that's why I show you how in these different programs or why, I, like I said, the attitude activator. If you expect something to be a problem, it will be a problem. If you expect something to be a, a blessing, it will be a blessing. We know this from the placebo effect, and I spent more than 40 years researching and studying the placebo effect. And I got to tell you, 40 years ago, everything about the placebo effect was, oh, that's placebo, that's placebo, that's placebo. Now you got Joe Dispenza, and finally, and thank God, saying you are the placebo, which we've been saying for 40 years. I used to get criticized in books and around the around the world for going, oh, he says you can consciously utilize the placebo effect. Yes, well, that's the whole point. The placebo effect is not the little pill. The placebo effect is what happens when you think there's benefit. Right. right. Back when I started, there were maybe 100 studies on the placebo effect and attitude. Travis Air Force Base did a, a research study into cancer patients and said that attitude was the number one predictor for success. Attitude toward the treatment was the number one predictor for success of the treatment in these cancer patients when they did studies back in the, back four decades ago. And and other people, Norman Cousins and Bernie Siegel and 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 uh, Herbert Benson have discovered, you know, uh, how we relax and what we think and the power of laughter and optimism, how it affects our our physiology because of what we're producing inside our body, chemically. Right, right. So if you, this is why hypnotically people, if you've ever done this, they say, imagine biting into this juicy lemon, like I slice a lemon and you smell the lemon and, and suddenly you salivate. Yeah. Your mind doesn't know the difference between something that's real and not real. Uh-huh. So the brain doesn't know whether a fear that is re- reality-based or not reality-based. So a thought that stops you is, is as significant as something in the real world that could stop you like a wall. So it will always do what it always did based on conditioning, but it doesn't take massive action to keep you alive unless you needed it. That's what adrenaline is for. Right. If you're in the woods or you're driving and you need to steer out of the way or you're being chased by a bear, you take massive action to get away from the bear. Although now they tell you stand still and hold your ground or whatever, you know, don't don't move because the bear can outrun you and, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right. Uh, by the way, don't take my advice regarding bears in the woods. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not but, the, but the point is that the brain looks for the easiest way and the least energetically way to keep you alive. It's not looking to take massive action all the time, but when, when you need it, it's there for you. So the body releases adrenaline so that it, 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 it stops your conscious mind from thinking. It shuts down your peripheral vision so you can spot, you know, a way to run. It takes the energy out of your digestive system and everything else and puts it into your limbs so that you can fight, flight, or flee, right? Fight, freeze, or flee. So that's as an example of massive action. So there's times once in a while where you might need that. But mostly in our day-to-day action or in our day-to-day lives, we don't need massive action. It's, it's counterintuitive and counterproductive. What we need is to do those things consistently, those small things consistently, through time, repeatedly and correctly, that will transform us. And that's what the brain does. It looks for the easiest way to do things, not the hardest way to do things. It's not there to try and break down walls. It's there trick to you, trick you. <laughs> well, you know, and the chapter in my book is there's no such thing as sabotage self-sabotage because your brain only does what it knows to do it's not there trying to to tell you you're wrong or screw you up or anything it's trying to keep you alive mm-hmm. people talk about negativity bias there's no such thing as negativity bias what that is is a survival bias and we humans judge 
things in the world as negative or positive. There is no negative or positive in the world. There's just events that happen, and there's and only human consciousness judges them. Right. I was going to say your judgment and your story and your perspective and your bias. Right. And so what we've done based on conditioning is how we judge ourselves. We either judge ourselves as capable or not capable, as good or not good, as stupid or as smart. We've made all these judgments which may have no basis in reality, but we act as if they're true. And we've dragged them around since childhood. And all of the world around us is conditioned to keep us the same. But you can break free, and that's the point. You can you can begin to discover that you do have choice and that you can do these things. But if you don't do them, you will always remain. This is why if you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. Right. And doing what you always have done repeatedly but expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. Right. Because that's what so many people do. They keep banging their head against the wall thinking, well, if I keep banging it, the wall will disappear. And the wall's going, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you, when you were talking about that, I kept thinking uh, like I got this vision of a parent dragging a kid, like the kid's like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And, and they might be bringing the kid to a birthday party or something. They just, they have this resistance and this fighting and this, you know, pushback. And it's like, Really? I mean, I, okay. I, I think like in terms of big, okay, this is where source is directing you. <laughs> this is where source is directing you and you're fighting and you're pushing back. And if you just let go and allowed yourself like the ease that you, that you talk about, it's this ease. It's like, it's directing you to what's best for you like those feelings of of angst and pushback and fear and frustration and all the things okay those perhaps might not be for you but the things which i which i love this philosophy and your perspective about this rex is that all of the things for you are the things that bring you joy and that you can celebrate and that you feel happy and content and fulfilled and and all the stuff that's so beautiful. That's so very beautiful. And I love the analogy of dragging a child somewhere and it could be good for them. That's exactly what the brain does because it doesn't know that the circumstance out there is good for you or bad for you. It just is dragging you wherever it's dragging you. And it may be dragging you away from something or towards something in order because of its conditioning. And the child's going, no, 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 no. You know, the brain's going, no, 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 kind of thing. And, and so very, that's very, it's a really great way to describe it because the, 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 the fact of the matter or the truth of the matter is I have somebody bowing. Can you hear me? <laughs> I can hear you. This is what life offers. This is about life. You know, when I say that, that you can do these small things to make a lot of a significance in your life, you can. That doesn't mean that there won't be uh, opportunities for more difficulty or hardship or challenges. Right. But you look at them. Right. How you how you um, go through them is is really really does matter. And if you if you think I can't do it, you will never do it. If you think I can do this and I will find a way, then you can find a way. You know, um, Napoleon Hill of the five hundred twenty people that he modeled who were very rich said that before they all became successful and, and obscenely successful in their day, most of them experienced incredible hardship and some of their greatest difficulties right before they broke through. Mm. And and so what we don't realize is that there is there is there is something on the other side of hardship and that's an equivalent seed of opportunity. 
So if you're looking at the hardship or the gap between you and your goal, instead of looking at the opportunity that exists, you're missing the point. If so many people miss the point because our society redirects them to look at everything but where they should be looking. You should look within. You should look to your resourcefulness. You should look for what you can and will do and what you can accomplish, not at the circumstances out there that that you think will prevent you. So one of my favorite stories is in Napoleon Hill, and there's countless examples of this. The guy's name was Edward C. Barnes, and he's the first character you meet in Think and Grow Rich. He's also in Laws of Success, but... but um, since that Edwin C. Barnes had a, a wish to meet Thomas Edison at the time, which may have started his wish, but quickly became a white-hot obsession. It became a passion. It became a desire. So much so that at some point, when it was hot and fervent enough, he jumped on a, on a freight train as, as a hobo and, and made his way to New Jersey to put Edison on notice that I'm going to be your partner. Huh. When he gets to New Jersey, Edison does meet him. He says the guy's dressed like a hobo. There's nothing remarkable about him at all, except for the look in his eye. And he said, I know I'm smart enough as a, as a boss to hire people who have that look in their eyes. Something going on in this person. So he gave him a job as a janitor in his warehouse. Barnes took the job. He's certainly not a partner, but he took the job and worked as a janitor. Now, you, you, you read a little further and it says for five years, Barnes worked as a janitor with no outward sign of success, with every indication that he was only a janitor. Uh But within him, he kept his dream and his passion and his white-hot obsession alive that he was, in fact, Edison's partner. And after five years of working as a janitor, he then, an opportunity opened up where the salespeople at Edison couldn't move a dictaphone, a new one that they were trying to move, and they said, we can't sell this. Barnes said, I'll sell it. Edison gave him the opportunity he was so successful at selling it, Edison made him a partner. <laughs> and it was said, made by, made by Edison, sold by Barnes. And uh-huh. Barnes hired a very wealthy man in Florida and became Hill, became Hill, you know, a friend of Napoleon Hill. But the point is, is that he didn't let outside circumstances yeah. bother him. He didn't take, he didn't say, I'm just a janitor. And the people who break through and the people who are successful don't let the appearance of the world prevent them from being successful. Billionaires and billionaires have learned, many of them, not all of them, have learned how to make money. So if they lose their money, they're not worried because they can make it. They don't want to. you know. And some have lost their money. You're faced with losing it and have done what other people have done. They've, 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 they've been broken and they've done silly things or killed themselves or whatever because they couldn't see any way out. But many of them, same thing with, happens when people go bankrupt. A lot of people who go bankrupt understand that there's really nothing to fear about bankruptcy. You know, that that's a government option for getting out of certain debt and all this kind of stuff. But most people fear it. They go, I don't want to do that. You know, it means that the whole thing, life is over, I'm bankrupt. But those who actually have gone through it go, it wasn't pleasant, but it, but I survived it. Uh-huh. So billionaires know how to, to be millionaires. They know how to make their money back. Most people who don't, aren't good at making money and who want to make money don't know how to make money and so they they are concerned about money and the lack of money all the time what do winners do winners win so the more that you win the more you're able to win so what what my whole goal has been is to set you up 
so that you can do these small things that make wins along the way because if right. you win here and win here and win here, it creates its own momentum. And then you make a habit of winning. And I'm not saying winning and somebody else losing. I'm saying right. your personal best. Right. So you, you can transform yourself easily. And when hardships come up, you're better equipped to handle them. So if you're in the middle of turmoil right now, people need to just kind of stop and understand that there is a way out. There is a way to change their lives. And it's going to be, t- it may be tiny steps, but those tiny steps in the long run will, will bring them great, great solution, great relief, great, great opportunity to transform their lives in ways that they could never yet think possible. All right. So every day, um, create your best life and wake up to more and more real love. Thank you, listeners. We'll see you next time. Take care. Subscribe to the Wake Up to Real Love podcast. Leave five-star reviews. And of course, share with your friends. You can find Dawn on various social media platforms at Dawn Richard or at The Awakening with Dawn.